Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is a content warning for this episode. This episode contains a story of sexual assault from a survivor. We discuss sexual violence, trauma, and assault recovery. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey guys, I'm Whitney Port and this is With Wit. A lot of you may know me from reality TV and the reality is a lot's happened since the hills. With Wit is dedicated to having real, raw, and occasionally ridiculous conversations with the people who have had a profound impact on me. Life-changing moments, life-changing people. Because on With Wit, very little is off limits. Today, I'm sharing my conversation I had with Brittany Piper. Brittany is an amazing woman. She's an international activist, speaker, and healing coach, cultivating 300 plus programs spanning 10 years and three continents. Her work has been recognized by the U.S. Army, the Clinton Foundation, Cosmopolitan, USA Today, and so many more. She is a rape survivor and leading national expert and advocate on sexual violence prevention and recovery, speaking to tens of thousands of audience members each year. She is also a forensic neurobiology expert, conducting dozens of trauma-informed trainings and programs with the United States Army and sex crimes detectives annually. She is the founder and creator of the Functional Breakthrough Method, a one-on-one coaching and healing program that supports survivors of trauma. In the comments below, you'll see some resources for anyone dealing with this issue. Here is Brittany. I'm really so happy to be talking to you just because I have never really explored this space on my podcast before or really on on my social in general. I'm a very vulnerable person on my social media and think it's super, super valuable and and important to like leverage, obviously, the community that we have to shed light on these important issues that are really like what we should be focusing on, like the healing of this kind of stuff. So I'm really thrilled to have you to share your story. It's obviously I was talking to Annie, our brand director, and I was like, I'm sort of nervous to have this conversation. Like, I feel like I don't know exactly all the right things to say or the right questions to ask, but I feel like that's really what you're here for to like kind of destigmatize the conversation and make it a comfortable thing for people to talk about. Yeah. So yeah. You know, I think that that's, when I come into these conversations, everyone's always a little nervous because it's like, how the heck do we even talk about such a hard and heavy topic? And so 
a lot of the goal for me, at least in having these conversations on bigger platforms is just normalizing it and Mm -hmm. letting people recognize that just because we haven't experienced it doesn't mean that we can't talk about it. So I'm, I'm super conversational, you know, just back and forth chatting like two girlfriends is kind of how I like to do my thing. So if that sounds good to you, that sounds great to me. I am much more laid back and it's, it's funny um, because people, I think they take like my bio or my resume and they're like, she's going to be really serious. And I'm like, no, like I'm, I'm just super laid back. So, right. Okay, cool. Yeah. My goal for this conversation is to educate my listeners and let those who have experienced sexual assault know that they are not alone, obviously. Mm -hmm. And I, and I think that this is more and more like luckily because of social media, I think, and this ability for communities to come together and like support one another. Hopefully people are feeling more and more supported. Yeah. But I think it would be important for everyone to just hear like your personal story as much as you're comfortable sharing and how it got you to this place to become like an advocate and to help people not feel so alone. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's a great place to start. I think when you put a face to it, people can resonate, people can relate with it, you know, because I'm just like your average everyday girl. And I think we're all walking around with trauma and pain in very nuanced ways. And so just seeding the conversation, but also I love these conversations where I'm not talking with like sex crimes detectives or other specialists, like just average everyday friends and people, because that's, you know, like, these shouldn't be, these conversations shouldn't happen only if it's happened to us, you know? Um, And I think that when it comes to like sexual violence, it, it impacts everyone across the board, whether or not you've experienced it, you've experienced it in some way. So whether you're the one in four, or as they say, like the three and four, you know, the people who it hasn't happened to, it's still, it leaves like a lasting imprint, you know, it, it sends shockwaves. And so Yeah. I mean, it's not only like, yes, for the one and four, it's that it actually happened to them. But for the three and four, there's like definitely a little bit of fear that you have to deal with that you think about on a daily basis that you really wish that you didn't have to think about. I actually I like to kind of start by telling my story from the very beginning. I work a lot with survivors. I have a trauma and recovery and healing practice. So I work one on one with survivors. And what we talk about often in the work that I do in that space is that there's the assault and the trauma of an assault. And then there's the trauma of the aftermath and how it affects our relationships, how it affects our lives, how we cope with not feeling safe in our bodies, not feeling safe in our environments. And so I think to give people the full context of like the entire trajectory of my story, I always kind of start at the beginning, if that's okay. Yes, please. So I like to say that my story started back in 1988. So I was born in 1988 in San Diego. The day that I was born, I was actually taken from my mother by child protective services and put into foster care because there was methamphetamine found in my system. My mom was a young mom dealing with life on her own, you know, the messiness, hard parts of life. And she didn't have the tools to cope in a, in a productive and healthy way. And so she resorted to, to drugs. My brother and I were taken from my mom, put into foster care. After about a few months, we were, we were reunited with my mom and um, my family because my grandparents took us in. After some time, she got her life back on track, you know, grew up with mom. She's today like one of the most badass, strongest, most amazing women I've ever met in my life. 
but I always say that that's kind of where like my trauma started. You know, there's a science called epigenetics, which studies like generational trauma and how trauma is passed down to us. And so for me, I was literally born into addiction, you know, with this chemical imbalance. And so I think that plays a big role in like my recovery and how things turned out the way that they did. Didn't really grow up with my biological father, but my stepdad was around. But I think like my first real tangible trauma was when I was in high school. Um, My older brother, Dominic, he was killed in a car accident. And because my family didn't really, again, have like the tools to learn how to cope, we, I think we kind of dove into that like avoidance. You know, I was about 15 and a half at the time. And so my parents were honestly back at work within like a week or two. I think they were just like, let's just be strong. Let's like get our shit together and just work through this. And so, you know, and when you lose, when you lose someone suddenly, like you don't have the time to prepare for it. It's kind of like the rug is just like stripped out from under you and there's a void in your life. And so for me, I didn't know how to fill that void. And so alcohol naturally was the first thing that I reached for. And so over the kind of course of my high school years, I became known as, you know, the girl with the dead brother, the drunk girl, the girl who did drugs. And that was the path that I was on for quite a while. It got so bad to where the first, my first semester of college, I actually was in New York city, um, away from friends and family. And within my first semester of college, I ended up in a hospital one night with alcohol poisoning. I had a blood alcohol content of a 0.38 and I flatlined at the hospital. And so, you know, I didn't really have like, I didn't have a pedal to slow down. It was just constant. I don't want to feel pain. I just want to self-medicate and numb out. And so that's what my life looked like for a really, really long time. And so I decided New York was not the place for me. I went back to the Midwest to be with my family. I was kind of on like, I I don't know, I would say like the up and up. I was getting my, my shit back together. And then I was about 20 years old at the time, out one night with friends, just drinking, dancing, having fun. And I realized at the end of the night that I'd left my phone in a friend's purse So I ventured out to get my phone from her because what 20 year old wants to be without their phone, even if they're ever, what any age, Yeah, what any age, I know. (laughs) And I hit a pothole on the way, ended up with a flat tire pulled off into the closest gas station that I could find off of the first exit. And it was honestly a really sketchy area, but I had no other option. And Mm -hmm. where are you from? Like what? This was in um, Indianapolis, Indiana. There was a man who helped me change my tire. I offered him money as a way to say thank you. And he just kept insisting that I let him into my car. I kept insisting on paying him. And then over time, I think like, I just felt bad. And I wanted to, you know, like give him something because he helped me. And so I wanted to return the favor. And so I reluctantly let him into my car. And then less than a mile down the road, you know, he essentially brutally raped and beat me. I was in the hospital for a short time, but I think the hard part for me was, you know, there was a moment when the assault came to an end and he told me to get out of the car, to lay in the grass and put my face down in the grass and to pop the trunk. And I heard, you know, like metal and I knew he had the tire iron. And so, you know, I realized in that moment that he was probably going to take my life. And so I just remember, you know, like, what's the one card that I can use? And I just begged him not to take another child from my parents because they had, um, sorry, it's hard to talk about. Yeah, they they already lost one. Yeah, And um, I just didn't want to put them through that again. And so I think it was out of pity, but he didn't, didn't kill me, but he, 
he brutally beat me with that tire iron. You know, I had bruising, lacerations all over my face and body, dislocated jaw, cartilage torn in my jaw. Like I was a mess. And I remember driving home and my best friend was sleeping on the couch. She was out with me that night and hysterical, crying, you know, a bloody mess. Honestly, I I woke her up, told her what happened. And her response was go to bed, sleep it off. Maybe we'll talk in the morning. And, you know, so I carried myself upstairs, put myself into bed. And as I was crying myself to sleep, my roommate heard me from across the hall. And so she came into the room, simply looked at me. And I always say, you know, she didn't have to analyze. She didn't have to know what happened. She just looked at me and she empathized and she picked me up, like physically picked me up. She carried me down the stairs, placed me in her car, drove me to the hospital and called my parents on the way. And so I'll, you know, if it weren't for her, I don't know that I ever would have gone to the hospital because that honestly just wasn't even something I was thinking about. I just wanted to get home and feel safe. And so after that, he was apprehended a few days later. And then we went through a grueling nearly two-year trial process. He had been in and out of the prison system like his entire life. And so he really knew how to work the system. So the case was continued nine times, which meant that nine times I had to go in or, you know, like postponed nine times I had to go in, meet with my attorneys, go through the tape statements, go through the depositions, practice being on the witness stand, which really meant, you know, over nine times I had to relive every graphic detail of that night. And I think now when people ask me, you know, how are you able to talk about it? in the capacity that you do, because I'm a a professional speaker. So I do like 50 to 60 events a year. And I think that's why, I mean, it was kind of like the most brutal form of exposure-based therapy, you know? Uh, (laughs) It's so true. I mean, I find sometimes, and I obviously have not gone through anything near to what you have, but I find when the more I talk about things, and even if it's just like talking on my podcast to myself, like the more that Mm -hmm. I actually say it out loud and tell the story, the more I feel like I'm healing and like pushing it further away from me in a way, you know, and like exposing it. And it feels like it's something that Mm -hmm. lives out in the open space and not just like in my brain and in my heart. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's definitely research behind that, you know, that the more that we talk it out loud. And I always say that there's Brene Brown and then there's the Bible. I mean, she is up there. She's seriously awesome. She's Um, the best. She has a quote that says, when we deny the story, it owns us. But when we can share the story, we can write a brave new ending. And I think that that's really true. And I I think the way that you just put it is perfect. Like we can distance ourselves from it in a way that doesn't feel like we're still living in that present moment. Right. Like it's not, that's it. Yeah. And that's not what defines us right now. And like, it didn't even obviously define us at that moment when it was happening, but like it, it doesn't have to define us right now. It can be part of like what made us who we are, but Yeah. I mean, I think it's incredible because there are very few people that are able to like constantly relive and retell Mm -hmm. that story from obviously from the beginning to the end. So like how long, so the process was two years and like at this point in your life, like how were you dealing? How were you existing? What was your support system like? Like what was life like? That's a great question. (laughs) 
So that two-year trial process happened, and then he ultimately was sentenced to 60 years. Oh, my God. And Mars. 30 years of that sentence was a habitual sentence. So he got like an extension because he was a habitual offender. He had been in and out his whole life. So yeah, he got a 60 year sentence. And I always, whenever I talk to audiences about my story, I like to share, it's like a two minute news clip that the media played about my story and the way that they talked about me, the news anchors, they, um, the last 10 seconds, they say verbatim, you know, this was a survivor who refused to be broken. I was telling Dave, my co-anchor earlier backstage that 20 years of covering court trials, I've never seen a rape victim who was this poised, this composed, this brave, who was able to look her rapist in the eye and said, you did this. Mm -hmm. And so they really set the scene that I had my life together. And what people didn't know is that, you know, although I showed up brave on the outside and during the trial, during that two-year period, I was probably at the lowest, lowest point in my life. When I say like I was at my lowest place, I was dealing with severe eating disorders. I was in a very toxic and abusive relationship, um, suicidal ideation, pill dependence, and of course the alcohol abuse. Um, And it got to the point where 30 days after the sentencing and 30 days after um, the news video aired, I actually ended up in jail. So, (laughs) um, and this is where, what I refer to as like my concrete, like not my rock bottom, but that jail cell was my concrete bottom. Yeah. I was out, I was out with, um, my boyfriend who was drinking and driving. And I think that should give people like a good indication of where I was at at the time in my life. And he got pulled over, arrested for DUI. And as the police officers went to pull me out of the car, just to simply give me a ride home, in my drunken mind, I had a flashback from the night of my assault, you know, being violently touched by someone in a car and I snapped and I don't remember it because I was, you know, blacked out, but I ended up in jail with two counts of battery on an officer with injury, one count of resisting arrest and one count of intimidation. And so whenever I share that news video with people, they don't know that I'm the survivor in the story. They just watch it. And then afterwards I say, I'm the survivor and I want to give you context into what my life really looked like. Yeah. And so I remember calling my dad from jail and being like, um, hi dad, you know, I'm, I'm in jail. Surprise. <laughs> and, um, he just said, we're not bailing you out. You know, you need to, to learn your lesson. If you don't learn how to stop running from your pain and how to stop living like this, you are literally going to kill yourself. And so, but was that the kind of tough love that you felt like you needed at that point? Yeah, it was, it was, I was there for two days. I mean, I just had to go through processing. So I sat yeah. there for two uh-huh. days and it was like the six by eight cell, but that was the first time that I had to sit in the discomfort of pain. You know, I couldn't rely on alcohol or drugs or busyness or any type of avoidance or numbing to avoid the mess of my life. And I was totally and fine. no one could rescue you, but you, and that yeah. I guess like, yeah, for me as a parent now, I'm like, oh my gosh, that is really ultimate tough love because mm-hmm. you know that your daughter has just experienced this horrible trauma and now right. she's in jail. And it's probably because of the result of this trauma, but like, how am I going to help her move forward? And I I mean, in my head, like the first thing that I would think would be like, go rescue her, you know, like go get her out of there. But I, I, I can see how that could then force you to take some control. Yeah. It was a very tumultuous two years. You know, I mean, they saw me hit rock bottom over. So they had gone through it. Yeah. And I think this was like their last ditch effort. And so Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And then after a couple of days, I went before the judge. She knew who I was. She said, you're the survivor from that sexual assault case. And I was like, yes, ma'am, I am. And I always tell people she looked like Judge Judy just to like illustrate this. <laughs> and she, she said, we're going to give you a second chance. We're going to drop the charges. But she said, you need to learn to live with your trauma better. And that was my aha moment because she didn't say you need to learn to get past it. She didn't say you need to learn to get over it. She said, you need to learn to live with it. And I think in that moment I realized, okay, like there's no more running from all of the stuff that has happened in my life. It is time to put my big girl pants on and to get comfortable sitting in the discomfort, sitting in the pain, processing it. And so that's kind of been, you know, the trajectory of my life over the past 10 years is just learning how to coexist with my trauma in a way that's much more supportive and compassionate and loving. You know, I still have really hard days. I always say it's 10 steps forward and three steps back, but you're still progressing. But I think we live in a world where we want a quick fix, you know, like give it to me now. Like I want to wake up tomorrow and I want to be fine and I want to be cured and fixed. And when it comes to trauma, whether it's trauma like I've had, which we would call big T or, you know, like uppercase trauma. Yeah. Or if it's like more nuanced trauma, like lowercase T trauma, which is something like mom and dad leaving you at school and forgetting to pick you up. Like when you're in the third grade multiple times, we all handle trauma in different ways. And so, you know, I just, I realized I can't keep running from it. I have to learn to live with it. And now a word from our brand partner. I have been obsessing over the Gemma's products. And as you can see on my social, my hair is looking amazing. I feel like I have had such a hard time finding the right shampoo and conditioner that works for me and my specific hair type. I feel like I've tried so many products and nothing seems to be like perfect for my hair and my scalp. But lately, since I've been working with Gemist, I took their quick two minute quiz and their fancy schmancy algorithm matched me with the best shampoo and conditioner and a scalp balancing bar. And I have to admit, I had no idea what a scalp bar was, but it removed buildup and so much more. It's not magic. It's science. And science is what I base pretty much all of my product selections on. It's a women owned company free returns. The quality of ingredients are amazing. Sulfate-free, paraben-free, dye-free, never tested on animals and manufactured in the U.S. If you are ready to have the best hair of your life, try Gemist. Right now, my listeners can give Gemist a try and get 20% off their shampoo and conditioner smart subscription. Smart subscribers already save 20% off on each order. So this is an amazing deal. And with free two-day shipping, you can have it in no time. Just visit gemist.com to get your personalized recommendation and enter with wit20 at checkout for 20% off and free two-day shipping. That's gemist.com, G-E-M-M-I-S-T, dot com and enter code with wit 20 that's with wit 20 at checkout to get the best hair of your life i feel like i have the best hair of my life right now seriously and now we're with one of our brand partners and other stories is added again with the cutest spring stuff They have a spring style signatures campaign, which introduces new customers to 
and other stories because I don't know. I feel like it's an underrated, under talked about brand that is so amazing and so accessible and affordable, but so trend driven. And I feel like unique and different. Their spring collection is just so happy and exciting and refreshing and makes you feel amped up to get dressed up and to go outside and to experience this new season. They are a destination with collections from three ateliers based in Stockholm, Paris, and Los Angeles. Right now, they have a Regina Pio collab, which is so, so cute. They have like the cutest orange color stuff, really pretty soft fabric. If you guys didn't know, Regina Pio is a florist in Los Angeles and she just uses the most unexpected colors and shapes and textures. And so the collection is really beautiful and you guys should really check it out if you're feeling like you need a little pep in your step and a new spring wardrobe. For a limited time only, take 15% off your entire order on stories.com. Get inspired, create your own signature style at stories.com and use the code WIT for 15% off your entire order. That's 15% off your entire order on stories.com with the code WIT. The offer is valid in the United States only. Once again, for a limited time only, that's 15% off your entire order on stories.com with the code WIT. I am so excited to talk to you guys about this. Stacked Skincare is making the most amazing products for your skin. They have made this new thing called the Cryo Ice Roller for your face, which is a refreshingly cold at-home treatment used to soothe sensitive skin, de-puff under eyes, and visibly lift your facial contours. Now, I've tried a million things for puffy eyes because we all know I'm a sensitive Pisces. I cry all the time and wake up with puffy red eyes. This cryo ice roller is amazing. It has an ergonomic handle for those hard to reach spots. And it is just so refreshing too. It just gives you that like little wake me up that you need. It's egg shaped. So it provides cooling reflexology and lymphatic draining massage, making it so much more effective than a Jane roller for contouring facial features. I was introduced to Sex Skin Care, which was founded by celebrity esthetician Carrie Benjamin. And she brings these types of spa treatments, dermaplaning, microneedling right to your bathroom counter. You all know how obsessed I am with dermaplaning. It is for sure one of my secrets for smooth, even skin. Every product is developed by Carrie. She reimagined that home skincare routine based on a professional technique of stacking facial tools and gentle exfoliation treatments. Whether your concerns are fine lines, acne, dark spots, this cryo ice roller, which is a refreshing face massager you leave in your freezer to reduce puffiness is really so awesome. It gives you that quick pick me up around your eyes if you've gotten zero sleep too. I so highly recommend these products, especially the Dermaplater and the Cryo Ice Roller. To get them for yourself, go to stackedskincare.com slash withwit for 20% off your first purchase. That's stackedskincare.com slash withwit for 20% off your first purchase. And now back to our conversation. You know, I just, I realized... I can't keep running from it. I have to learn to live with it. So how, what was your first step in doing that or your first couple steps? Like after that day, what did you start to do? So after that, I started seeing a therapist. That was kind of like step number one. 
during the trial, I had a victim's advocate, which, you know, the, the courts essentially just give you, if you ever need to reach out to someone, they help you within the, the justice process, but reached out to a trauma specialist. And then step number two was actually finding ways to reintegrate my experience back into my life in a more purposeful way. And so the process of that is called reintegration. And so it's kind of like repurposing your pain. You know, what purpose can I find in my suffering? And so I switched my degree in college. So I have a background, excuse me, in women's studies with- Me too. Oh, no way. Yeah. <laughs> High five through the screen. That's I, awesome. I know, yeah. Oh my God. I didn't know that. It was actually that. gender wonderful. studies, but yeah. yeah. That's just, I don't know. I just, I got really, really curious about why- because the more that I started talking about my assault, you know, the more public it became, people started reaching out to me. And I was like, how is it that so many people are experiencing this, but no one is talking about it. And so, um, I switched majors into women's studies. I have concentrations in, um, gender-based violence and violence prevention. And then after graduating, I started working in crisis centers, mainly trauma and rape crisis centers in developing countries. So I did that overseas for about four years on and off, working a lot on the prevention side, but also the recovery side as well. And then when I started exploring more of the recovery side, I realized that, you know, in recovery, we often take on these survival patterns that help us feel safe, although they might be destructive, such as drinking, such as avoiding, such as, you know, numbing out. And so I got really, really curious about that. I started to explore, you know, like <laughs> the, the criminal like, or the, the prison system and seeing that so many inmates, people who are incarcerated today, 90, over 90% of them have experienced trauma early on in life. And so it's just really these cycles of violence and these cycles of trauma. And we are just passing on our hurt to people. And that's what I did when I, you know, honestly, when I beat up those police officers and, um, <laughs> you were feeling so much hurt and you felt like you had to like put it on someone else. Like you yeah. felt like you had to get it out in some way. Yep. Yeah. And his, um, during the trial, the defense team, I think the only argument they could use was the fact that my perpetrator, that he had had, they said he had mental health issues, physical health issues, um, poor schooling, and that he was raised by an aunt of one as one of 15 kids and he was an orphan. And so, right. you know, he had his own trauma and I just saw these cycles repeating. He passed it on to me. I passed it on to others. And so that's where I then got really curious about healing work, you know, so it went from like rape crisis centers and all the while I honest, I also was working with a sex crimes detective for my case and sexual assault nurse examiner. Um, they taught courses, they're called rape aggression defense courses, rad courses on universities and campuses in the Midwest. And they said, Hey, we've done this for years. We always have wanted a, like a survivor's perspective. Would you work with us and like help teach these courses? And so that's where the speaking journey began, you know? So I was like speaking and then I started doing that on my own. And then I was doing the work within trauma centers. And then I was starting to explore the healing work. And so, um, that, is kind of, for me, it's been my biggest form of healing is finding like the silver lining, finding the why, finding the meaning in all. Or helping prevent it further, like getting to the root of the problem. I think that is, that's 
I mean, it's all really challenging work, like to think about going from working with actual victims and having to hear those stories all the time and then relive that through yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously, I'm sure your story then was flashed in your head all the time. And then to go to go to the root of the issue and work on the preventative thing, because people, you know, it's very big of you because you could devote yourself to the people like you. But I think it's very big of you to look at a big picture and be like, how can I just like actually do my best to stop this from happening mm. to even begin with? Right. I want to get back, though, to your friend, who your first friend who you mm -hmm. saw the one that told you just to go back to your room and go to sleep and sleep it off. So like, obviously, that's so clearly, obviously the wrong approach. But talk about more like do's and don'ts when talking to someone. One, obviously, after something has happened. I mean, it feels obvious to me, but after something has happened and then also just do's and don'ts of talking to friends that have experienced this and like mm -hmm. how often do you bring it up if if at all, you know, those kinds of conversations just yeah. so that we can feel armed and feel more confident, like actually being of support to people who have been through this. Yeah. Um, that's a great question. And probably to be honest with you, one of the most frequently asked questions that I get at all of my events, you know, I'm as sure. an ally, as an ally, as a friend, as a peer, as a loved one, how can I show up for people in my life who've experienced sexual violence? So I think what happened for me is a good example of how we've gotten to a place in our society where we only sympathize with survivors and we don't empathize. So what's, what's the difference? So empathy is where we look at someone and we can say, I acknowledge your experience. I see what you've gone through and I'm going to help you carry that. I'm going to help you carry that pain. And I'm going to make sure it happens to no one else. My roommate who physically picked me up and literally carried me and my pain downstairs, she responded with empathy. My other friend who said, go to bed, maybe we'll talk tomorrow. She responded with sympathy and sympathy says, I'm sorry that happened to you, but that's just life. I think that when it comes to the topic of sexual violence, it's overwhelming for us because we feel like this is something that's always going to be a part of our reality. And so why even bother? It's such a big, a big issue to face, but just the way that we show up for people in small ways makes a really big difference. And I always say that when someone discloses to you or confides in you that they're a survivor, your response can make or break their recovery. That's so much responsibility. I mean, <laughs> I, I get it, but it is so much responsibility. But I guess that's why you, we have to have these conversations. Right. We yep. have to be educated on these things. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. when it comes to showing up with empathy, these are kind of like my top tips. So number one, I always say, don't take lead of the conversation, allow them to take the lead because a survivor already feels like they've been disempowered because they already feel like their control has been stripped from them. I tell people, you know, don't tell them how to feel. Don't tell them what to think. Don't tell them what next steps to take. Allow them to make those decisions in their own time and in their own way. That's number one. Um, number two, believe it or not, your body language is so important. There's the Einstein rule, which is called the 93% rule. And it says that conversations are 93% body language and 7% the words that are coming out of our mouths. And so I think because we're always distracted, something as simple as like putting down your phone and giving them your undivided attention is helpful. Number three, give them praise, like acknowledge them, tell them that what they just did was incredibly brave, that you believe them. Don't ask them why, why questions, because why insinuates that they might've done something wrong. And then encourage them to keep talking about it if they want to, 
and with people that they know and trust. Number four, don't ghost or disappear. I think because we don't know how to respond, a lot of us just distance ourselves from survivors. But, you know, I think you've dealt with grief before. You know, there's that moment where everyone shows up with casseroles. Everyone shows up and they're there for like the first couple of weeks. And then after the funeral and life dies down, they disappear. And it can be an isolating feeling. And so what happens though with survivors of sexual assault is they take people's absence as proof that they're to blame or that they've done something wrong. Like I'm just a problem now. Nobody wants to like deal with me or talk to me about it. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yep. Um, Because that's what culture has taught them to believe. The next thing is try, and I know this is hard, but try not to get emotional because, and it can be hard to hear to hear experiences of sexual assault, especially from people that you love, people that you care for, it can be infuriating, it can be heartbreaking, or it might even trigger something that you've gone through. But the minute that they see that you're emotional, they're going to want to give you support rather than really getting that crucial support. And then lastly, I would say provide them with resources. So what happens when we experience trauma? And I think my example is the perfect experience is you know, when it comes to our autonomic nervous system, you know, we have like rest and digest and then we have fight, flight, or freeze. And when we go into that survival mode of fight, flight, or freeze, there's a point in that process where we become dissociated in our brains in our trauma brain from the front of our brain, which is the prefrontal cortex. And I call the prefrontal cortex just for, you know, basic understanding mom brain, like that's, that's the right and wrong. That's like the logic and reasoning. Um, but like all logic goes out the window. And so we become um, essentially controlled or operating. We start operating from the amygdala, which is the brain's fear and survival center at the back of the brain. But a lot of survivors never come out of that survival mode because when it happens, we don't want to process the pain, right? We're avoiding it because it's really hard to go through. For me, for instance, I drove straight home. I didn't drive to the hospital. I didn't drive to the police station. Like that was not even a thought in my mind, not because I didn't want to. I just honestly didn't think about it. I just wanted to find safety. And so my suggestion is, is to let that survivor know that they have resources and that they have options without forcing them to make that decision because not everyone wants to report what they've gone through. It can be a really re-traumatizing experience. And so again, allow them to make that decision, but also just kindly let them know that they have options and that you're willing to support them in whatever decision they make. Right. And to let them be as open or not as they want, but to make sure that they're talking to someone about it. Yeah. Yeah. Those would, those would probably be my, my top ones. What control or power do we have to prevent something like this? Right. I think it starts at a more like rudimentary level. Uh-huh. You know, when we talk about prevention, there's kind of like two lenses through which, through which we look. So there's primary prevention, which is getting down to the root cause of something to make sure mm-hmm. that it doesn't happen. And then there's secondary prevention, which is how do we make sure it doesn't happen again? How does this not repeat itself? It's kind of like that band-aid approach. And I think when it comes to sexual assault, we are only responding to it. We're not like trying to change the inherent culture and the society, you know, the structures right. that have made this so prevalent. Right. Which is what you were talking about, which is now your your purpose. Yeah. 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 So, you know, of course there's the, how do I prevent it from happening to me? You know, there's, 
we can have conversations about like self-defense, being more aware of your surroundings, you know, having things like pepper spray, letting people know like where you are when you're going on a date, because mm-hmm. well, first of all, I think we have to break the myth or the belief that sexual assault always happens between strangers. That is actually very rare. Like my mm-hmm. case is very rare. Mm-hmm. 80 to 90% of the time it happens between people that the victim already knows that they're dating, that they've hooked up with, or that they're in a relationship with. So there's that. But I think that it starts, I, I believe, I believe Whitney, that it starts with sex education. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's where I think it's like I'm in third grade. Yeah. yeah. But no, it's, I think that that makes Our kids, a lot of sense. In this country, only 24 states require sex education. Out of those programs, 70% of them are abstinence-based, which means we're telling people wait until marriage to have sex, which is fine, you know, all fine and good, but let's be realistic. That's not happening. And so, so we're actually not talking about sex. And I think as parents, we we're doing the best that we know how, but we assume that our children are being taught these important lessons and they're, they're honestly not. And what's interesting is that here in the United States, there is so much red tape and stigma around sex education. I have tried to start talking to younger groups like middle school over the years, and it's hard. It's hard to get access to them um, because we believe that if we start talking to young people about sex, they're going to have more sex or more risky sex. And the research shows if you look at countries like the Netherlands, Denmark, and Sweden, they have a rubric called comprehensive sex education. So they start talking to young people, to young children, like at the ages of five and five and six about consent in the terms of like consent to come into my space, right? Consent to like share my things. Like this is how we respect each other's boundaries. This is how we listen to each other. What are healthy relationships? What do those look like? And then at age appropriate steps, they start furthering that conversation, you know? So you're not talking about oral, you know, you're, you're not talking about intercourse or oral sex or no, anything. No, like you're just that talking about age. like how to interact with someone exactly. in a physical way and like how yes. to respect people's boundaries and that exactly. we're all our own people and we all have yep. our own thresholds with touch and exactly proximity yep. and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally get that. And that yep. when you say that, like it sounds so fundamental and mm-hmm. like necessary. Yeah. You know, for anybody listening to this who who wants any resources or wants to be in contact with you and everything that you're doing, like what are some online support resources and then where can everybody find you? Everyone can reach out to me on Instagram at the Brit Piper. It's two T's, Brit Piper. I love connecting with people. And so if you have a question, if you have something that you're dealing with, reach out to me, send me a message. I would love to support. If they want to know more about the work that I do, um, whether it's healing services, whether it's speaking, they can go to BrittanyPiper.com. I spell my name B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y, not like Britney Spears. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thank you for sharing your story and for being so vulnerable. Well, thank you for letting me lend my voice and, and my story. I appreciate it. And for being willing to have this serious, but honestly easy. I mean, this was an easy conversation. Yeah, right? totally. So, you made it easy. So yeah. no reason to be nervous about this. 
Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you loved this episode. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I'd love to hear what you think and anything more or even less you'd want to hear about. Tune in every Tuesday for a new episode. If you want to know more about what I'm up to, you can find me on Instagram at Whitney E. Port, my website, WhitneyPort.com, and my YouTube channel, Whitney Port. Peace in the streets.